Hello, welcome to Myelopathy Matters, the official podcast of the charity myelopathy.org, where we talk all things degenerative cervical myelopathy from the perspective of the professionals, the researchers, and the people living with myelopathy. My name is Ben Davies, neurosurgeon, scientist, and a founder of myelopathy.org, and I'm joined by my co-host, Ewan Sadler, a person with DCM and also a founder of myelopathy.org. Today we're talking to spine surgeon Dr. Jamie Wilson, as well as a clinical researcher Ben Grodzinski, about the significance of age in DCM. This is Myelopathy Matters by myelopathy.org. So welcome to another episode of Myelopathy Matters, where we're focusing on age in degenerative cervical myelopathy. Perhaps I can start you in by asking you for your perspectives and perhaps the perspectives of the community. What do you think about when we talk about age and myelopathy? The most concerning questions regarding age within the support group is when we have members who don't consider themselves good candidates for surgery due to their age. Um, As we know, surgery is done to slow down progression, so you can imagine how concerned they are, especially if the symptoms are getting worse. So I'm hoping that this podcast can shed some light on this matter for the older generation who have myelopathy. That's that's really interesting. And where do you think those concerns resonate? I mean, do you think they're being told this by professionals or this is something that there's just a sort of natural concern with age and, and operations? I think there's a natural concern with age. And I think when you mention sort of spine surgery, um, everybody thinks of, you know, a major operation. Sort of spine surgery has come um, a long way uh, in the last few years. So, But it still has that sort of stigma attached, um, you know, is uh, recovery going to be a long process? Are they going to be strong enough to actually um, recover at a certain age? So, you know, there's a lot of dwelling questions in their heads uh, to be answered. And I think, you know, once you get doubt in your mind, that can throw your sort of train of thought completely. I think that's a really interesting uh, perspective and certainly one crucial aspect that often comes up in the context of age and DCM. But there are some other critical questions, I think, about whether age has a direct influence on the biology of the spinal cord and how perhaps age also influences the whole care pathway, you know, the process to diagnosis, as well as undergoing the surgery itself. And these are the questions that a researcher at the University of Cambridge, Ben Grodzinski, has been trying to grapple with by looking very comprehensively at the literature out there today. Hi, Ben. Welcome to the Myelopathy Matters podcast. Hello. We're talking today about uh, the impact of age on on myelopathy, and this is obviously a subject you've consolidated the first systematic review on. What in particular interested you about this question? Yeah, so I think to to some extent you could say, oh well, given that it's a degenerative condition, it's it's actually it might be kind of intuitive that age would have an effect, and indeed you can go right back down to kind of preclinical, non-human models and see that generally as cells age, individual cells in the body, they do start to degenerate. And so the kinds of processes that we're seeing, the underlying processes like we were just talking about with the uh, degeneration of those intervertebral discs, you might think that logically those would happen anyway. So kind of why bother answering the question? But I think what, what was key here is that we're trying to map it to the patient process. So rather than just saying, oh, well, yes, there's more degeneration, we're saying, all right, well, Let's break it down. Let's see how do 
how do patients actually come to their doctor? How do they present? Um, what's their function like at that kind of point? And then, and then what happens from then on is, you know, do, are, they, are they treated differently by their doctors? And, and what's the kind of long-term outlook? Really kind of mapping that closely to the patient journey was, was the idea here. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. So mapping just at a biological level, but also then that clinical care, that pathway, that experience uh, side as well. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And how did you approach trying to tackle this question? Yeah, so as I just kind of alluded to, we we broke it down into these stages of the patient journey. So these three domains, where the first domain is that of presentation, so how patients present, i.e. come to their doctor. So that's things like, do older patients have more severe disease, um, both in terms of their functional ability and in the underlying degenerative changes that we can see on imaging? Um, then the second domain is that of management. So do older patients get treated differently to the younger ones? Are they more or indeed less likely to get an operation? And is that operation different in terms of how it's done or in terms of how extensive repair is carried out? Those sort of questions. And finally, the third domain was that of outcomes. So once they've had their operation, what is actually the long-term outlook for these older patients? Do they receive the same benefit from the operation? Do they have more complications? That kind of kind of thing so we had those kind of three key domains that we were looking at and so you broke the question down into those phases and then how did you go about trying to investigate or find the evidence that would underpin those questions the the methodology we use is something called a systematic review which basically is a compilation of all of the research done by many many other researchers so rather than ourselves talking to patients and trying to see as many as we could and look at as many scans as we could we instead kind of stood on the shoulders of giants and harnessed the evidence that's already out there to see if we can bring all that together from multiple different studies to try and form a conclusion. And the way that that works in practical terms is that you search a number of databases for papers that are relevant to your question and then sift through those to find the ones that are answering exactly what you want to find and try and synthesize it all together to try and get the answer to what you're actually trying to find out to see if the papers agree or whether they don't. And my sense is that, that, that you know, reading the, your research as well is that it, it wasn't quite so straightforward because many of these studies haven't specifically looked at this question so much as they've had data that could potentially be used to answer this question. So it's a question of just bringing those studies that have either direct or maybe indirect relevance to this and then trying to pull bits out, stick it all together, bring that data together, I guess. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. So we included some 200-odd studies in, in this Piece of research this this review but as you say the vast majority of those were actually not the aim of those papers was not to look at the effect of aging on these various different aspects of dcm it was more that for many of them they had these two different groups um one where they might do one type of operation and one where they might do another type of operation and then they see that hey actually um the two groups have different ages and so we can see that actually these older patients are more likely to be getting this operation. And although that wasn't actually the primary outcome of the study, we can still use that as valid data. Now, of course, that does have some limitations in that it's because they're not having that as the primary outcome, it's only uh, an observational measure. We're not actually directly showing that it is the age that's causing those different things. We don't know whether patients were randomized to those two groups in some cases or whether they're just being... Um, having their normal care done and we're, we're retrospectively looking back and seeing what happened 
So there are a few different problems with, with doing that approach, but what it does allow us to do is get a lot more data from a lot of different papers to try and answer our question rather than just solely looking at the papers which were answering the exact question that we were. And what did that data show you? Yeah, so we had a we, we had a few kind of key findings in each domain. So I'll kind of take you through um, step by step. So within that first presentation domain, we found that, as you might expect, older patients do indeed have more severe disease before their operation, both in terms of how they function day to day, which is captured by various scoring systems like the MJOA score that patients might be familiar with, and also on those changes in imaging that we discussed earlier. Now, interestingly, though, there was no difference in the symptom duration between older and younger patients. So we had some concern going in that there might be quite a significant delay in diagnosing these older patients because those symptoms might just be mistaken for getting older. Um, and that might be one of the reasons behind that more severe presentation that I just mentioned. But in fact, actually, our data was encouraging and it showed that these older patients hadn't had their symptoms for any longer prior to their op than the younger patients. So that's, that's the presentation domain. Then within our second focus of research, the management, we're finding that older patients are just as likely to get an operation as the younger ones. And the actual way in which the operation is done did actually vary. Um, and that's likely to be a function of the disease severity that we talked about. So older patients more commonly had disease of the spine spanning more levels of the cord um, up to down. Finally, then within the outcomes domain, we found that although older patients have a poorer absolute post-operative function in terms of those that the scoring that they're getting for function after their operation. Um, when you normalize that to their preoperative function, we found that older patients actually get the same absolute benefit of the surgery as the younger patients do. And that's actually a really key finding, which is that we as healthcare professionals shouldn't be put off from giving our older patients the best clinical care that we can and actually doing that operation is needed because they, they do benefit. That's really key. So I think one of the difficulties with investigating age is, of course, that it's it's quite a broad term. And, you know, some of these studies have sort of broken it down into older or younger than 65, which some people may think is young, some people think is old. Other studies look very specifically at being over 80 or being as old as 90. So it perhaps can be quite difficult to, to be sure that all these studies are giving us the same data if, you know, they're drawing conclusions on populations of different age. Do you think that's a problem in this data, Ben? So I think it certainly could be a problem um, where absolutely what the difficulty with, with taking such a variety of studies as we did is that they are they're not what we call homogenous in terms of their methodology and their reporting in the sense that, as you say, some have the age cut off as, say, 65 as being old versus young. Some say it's 75, some say it's 80. So that's quite subjective. And indeed, it's not always just a, a binary cutoff. Some studies categorized um, effective age into groups. So they might say, all right, let's let's have a, a 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s group, and then use a, use a different statistical modeling system to see what the effect of that is across multiple groups, which is perfectly doable. So I totally agree that is a potential problem. The way that we got around that was rather than trying to normalize to one specific way of defining it, and try and say, oh, well, all of the studies which are not defining this way, we can't use. We took a, a sort of inclusive approach where we said, all right, we're not actually trying to extract the effect side, so how significant their findings are. We just want to see in the literature as a whole, 
what are the conclusions. So if we say, all right, we don't really mind for the purposes of our um, qualitative analysis, our trying to work out what all the studies say as a consensus, we don't really mind how exactly they've defined age. We want to know four studies that have looked at age, what is their consensus, and each study is perfectly liberty to define it as they are. And that would be more of a problem if we were doing what's called a meta-analysis, where we were trying to sum the effect sizes, i.e. literally add the data together of multiple different studies. Then you really do need to have exactly the same patient population, so for example, the same age cutoffs. But for what we're doing, which is more of a, a narrative analysis, where we're looking really at just the conclusions of multiple different studies, then we're allowed a bit more of that flexibility. One of the, I think, the particularly interesting findings of this review is that that data around the presentation and age. So what you observed was that the the length of time with symptoms was pretty consistent no matter how old you were, but just by being older, your your severity of disease was worse. Why why do you think that might be happening? I think that is a is likely to be a combination of factors. One is that underlying biology that we've really talked about. The fact that these actual uh, the degeneration of the ligaments with holding the, the different bones together and of the discs in between the bones, those do just start putting more slack with age, and that's just a natural process. And I think what adds on to that is that it's not that your actual function as a, as a person is going to be affected not just by the, the physical changes that are happening within your spine, but how you respond to those. So, for example, do you have other comorbidities? Do you also have osteoporosis or do you also have diabetes or have you also had recent operations and how it, how is your overall function? And this is different the concept of physiological reserve that is commonly talked about in medicine, that older patients potentially, their body finds it more difficult to deal with what might be actually the same physical process as in a younger patient. So reflecting then, Ewan, on your earlier question and then the age and surgery, it was probably quite interesting to hear what Ben found in his review of the literature. I think Ben touched on a very interesting point when he spoke about taking into account the bigger picture when it comes to outcomes. And age shouldn't be the only factor to to take into account to, to decide who will benefit from having surgery. We have a lot of people within the support group who have decided not to have surgery at an older age because they thought the risks outweigh the benefits of surgery. So hopefully these findings will give them sort of a fresh hope. I think that really picks up a real theme from our next guest now, which is you know, age is really only a crude surrogate measure of someone's, if you like, biological age, you know, or, or, or as we will hear in the next interview, frailty, because you know, as we know from walking down the street, you're often surprised perhaps to find out that that, that person might be only 30 when they look 60 or, or vice versa. I mean, this is a podcast, but you have to take my word for it. But Ewan, Ewan looks really only 30. But how old are you? <laughs> well, thank you, Ben. You're definitely on top of my Christmas card list this year. Um, I'm 50 between you and me and the podcast, podcast listeners. I had my operation in 2015 at the ripe old age of 45. So not everyone's age is the same. And these are the difficulties that I explored with my next guest, Dr. Jamie Wilson, Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery and Co-Director of the Comprehensive Spine Program at University of Nebraska Medical Center, USA. 
and I started by asking him why he became interested in age and the spine. I never thought I'd be a sort of geriatric uh, researcher or kind of explore age, but I think it really came from elements from my clinical practice. I've had the benefit of working with some of the best spine surgeons um, in in the world at a range of different hospitals in the UK, but also in 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 Canada. And I saw that there's there was a bit of a divergence between the approach when it comes to myelopathy with. Um, specifically due to age of the patients. Um, and there are some elements where they possibly wouldn't offer interventions or surgeries for people that are in a certain age group or certain age bracket. And when I, I explored this with my mentor up in Toronto, Professor Michael Failings, he thought we should probably delve a little bit deeper and try to really underpin the reasons why this was happening and really was were those sort of discrepancies well-founded or were there elements of age and aging uh, that we could um, try to tease out that might um, actually uh, improve or what we could change to improve the outcomes of DCM patients? And through our research, you know, do, as we know, DCM is, is a disease of age. Uh, the prevalence really increases when you start to get above the age of, say, 60, 65, 70. We, we want to try to improve the care of these patients, um, given that the population is only going to increase in this age group, and it's going to become a public health priority if we don't try and uh, address it. So that that meant we sort of started looking at um, age in particular with some of our databases, and also trying to tease out what is it about age? Is it the comorbidities? Is it, is it certain elements of age and aging or age-related factors that actually contributed more? That's very interesting. And perhaps we can go into a bit more detail then about that, that approach you took on a, on a scientific level. What were those studies? How were they conducted? Uh, and what were their findings? Sure. So uh, the, the, the first sort of major study um, that, that we looked into was combining two uh, different studies, the CSM North America study, the international and the CSM international study. These are large multi-center prospective databases where the surgeons would still decide the treatment, but then they would have baseline functional and quality of life impairment measurements and then have them repeated at six months, 12 months and 24 months. Um, and given the difficulties of doing you know, a randomized control trial in, in something like myelopathy, we thought this probably represents some of the best evidence that we could collect on the improvement or the function improvement the patients get after, after surgery. So we, we, we combine those two databases to make one database of 757 patients with a complete data set. And then we use an age cutoff of 70. Now, we, 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 it's, it's open to debate whether that's appropriate or not. But when we use the age cutoff of, of 70 as, you know, older age or in the geriatric age group, then we had 107 patients included in the database that were over the age of 70. And then we wanted to compare and really isolate the effect of age. And so what we did is used what we describe as a propensity-based analysis, where we, we chose certain factors in that age group, such as baseline impairment, um, as determined by the modified Japanese uh, Orthopedic Association scale, the MJOA, but also the number of comorbidities uh, and also the number of levels that they had operated on during surgery. And we were able to, to tease out 107 well-matched patients from the younger cohort to, to compare against. So in the end, we had two groups of 107 patients in the older and younger cohort. And then we could see how the functional 
and quality of life um, kind of improvements or changes were before and after surgery. Um, the, the main summary of the findings really were that both sets of, of patients improved in terms of their functional impairment. Um, both improved to the, the time interval of two years, but the younger cohorts seemed to improve at a magnitude that was higher than the older cohort. In terms of quality of life indicators, it also showed that the younger cohorts seemed to have an improvement in quality of life general mean scores compared to the older cohorts. So we concluded that our study showed that older patients do get a distinct benefit from surgery, but you have to temper the expectations compared to a younger cohort. And as on a on a sideline, we had we had the benefit of being able to measure the complications in both of these groups, and we found that actually they were fairly well matched. And apart from post-operative dysphagia after an anterior approach, both cohorts had very similar complication rates. So um, not only do we think that it's definitely worthwhile in terms of function and quality of life benefit. It also seems to be just as safe as operating on, on younger patients when they are equally matched in, in that manner. That's really interesting because, I mean, that, that's obviously the practical implications of that finding. But on a, on a biological level, what you've, you've done with that study is very comprehensively try to control for all the different potential factors that may influence response and really isolate it down to age. And actually, you're still showing that there probably is, I know it's you know the limits of the study, it's really only association, but there probably is a fundamental feature of age itself, which is dictating the, the amount of recovery. Mm. I think if when we, we, we looked to the sort of geriatric literature, try to understand a little bit more about what is it about the, the age itself that might be contributing to, the, to these findings. And we found that there are, there are a lot of difficulties in measuring something like quality of life in, in the elderly age group as they, they seem to perceive fairly significant uh, health impairments in a much, much easier light compared to younger patients. If, if, you could, if I give you an example, a 55-year-old chef who has some numbness in his fingers, it means that he can't chop up his um, food and, and you, um, kind of perform his livelihood. Even though his MJOA score may fall into the mild range, his quality of life may be drastically impaired compared to a 75-year-old patient who has numbness and problems with dexterity, but can generally get by with some assistance from partners or siblings, and therefore doesn't rate that as a significant quality of life impairment. So um, there are these sort of discrepancies that, that, that do feed in potential inaccuracies in, in studies such as ours. But uh, I guess if you take a step back and think, uh, yeah, in, in terms of how best do we investigate the effect of age? It's difficult to see how you could get a better representation in the model for the age group than using this cohort and this approach. That's really interesting. I, I, that's not something I had thought about. And I guess there's a limitation, but you know, some of those quality of life measures are fairly robustly validated in, in older age groups. I think the SF36 is one, not sure about the MGOA, but um, I guess one could point that limitation. But as you say, it's the, the best data set on myelopathy at the moment and, and a very compelling piece of piece of research and finding. I think uh, some of Jetan Badiwala's work um, coming out of the Fedings Laboratory in Toronto, he's really exploring the elements, the symptomatic elements that go into particularly mild myelopathy and how that will help us as clinicians decide on appropriate treatments. 
um, and really trying to tease out, you know, is it finger numbness that, that's the main contributor to quality of life issues? Is it, is it um, gait abnormalities? Is it the duration of symptoms that, that contributes? And these are all very interesting questions. And I think uh, really um, hits home to the kind of the RICO DCM project and really, you know, as researchers, we need to explore these these fundamental questions and always keep asking ourselves, even though these these measures such as MJON SF36 are well validated, um, can we do better? Quite enough subject possibly for, 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 for further discussion, but I guess it, it speaks to another area that you've also been working at, which is the, the difficulties in, in age. And, 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 you know, it's a very much a surrogate of, of performance, isn't it? And people look at age clinically. You mentioned that at the top of your interview, and perhaps it can it can change your perspectives on on how you manage something. You know, uh, one sixty year old is not necessarily the same as another sixty year old, and I believe this is something you've been looking at in particular with relation to to frailty. Yes, I, I obviously as as an extension to uh, to the work that I've just been talking about, we try to look at well, while there are other age related factors, is it is it just the number? Or is it actually the things that come with aging, the increased number of comorbidities, uh, the the effect that has on your mobility, the effect that it has on your muscle mass, things like that? And how how can we get a representation of that? And I think an emerging area in spine surgery, but also in, in DCM, is the element of, of frailty. And is frailty a much better global indicator of a patient's um, kind of tolerance and outcome after surgery than just just age um, and using age as a surrogate marker for physiological reserve? We actually did a systematic review that's sort of uh, in print at the moment. We're looking at frailty in spine surgery. And the main purpose of that was to try to identify whether anybody's really applied frailty in DCM patients. And the the answer is not really. And so we... We had access to the Nesquip database, and we had access to about 41,000 myelopathy patients from the Nesquip database, which collects data on kind of perioperative outcomes in the first 30 days after surgery and doesn't give you any data on functional impairment uh, or quality of life um, kind of long term. But um, it does give you an idea about kind of perioperative complications such as mortality and infection rate and reoperation. So we started to look at that and try to apply some of the more common indicators of frailty. There, there are a few out there. A lot of them have been performed in deformity surgery, but the most common ones are, are called the modified frailty index. There's, there's an 11-point MFI and there's a, there's a five-point MFI. And we tried to sort of compare those two with uh, another established uh, kind of estimate of frailty, which is the, the ASA grade, which we, we all know from our elective surgery, and also something called the Charleston Comorbidity Index, which is which kind of actually takes into account age, but also comorbidities and gives you a, a score. So we, we had those four measures of frailty, and we tried to apply them to DCM patients and, and, and then try to model and see whether we could predict to a high degree of accuracy whether frailty could give you a much better predictor than just using age age alone. And actually what we found is that the um, using frailty gives you a much greater uh, effect size when you're, when you're trying to apply uh, elements such as gender, age, and number of levels operated. Um, when you're trying to predict something like mortality, uh, or perioperative uh, morbidity, such as infections and reoperation, that measuring frailty gives you a much, much better idea and much higher predictive value than just using age alone. 
And so I think uh, that study has really opened the door to exploring uh, this in, in, a, in a much wider fashion. And I'm working um, with, the, with the Toronto group still um, in collaboration to try to kind of develop this and, and to, uh, to answer the questions about how frailty may impact the longer term outcomes and whether there are aspects of, of frailty that are, are difficult to measure because of the disease of myelopathy and how that that affects impairment compared to something like lumbar canal stenosis that may affect your gait but but not affect your upper limb function so i think uh, there's lots of lots of things to be explored when when it comes to frailty and physical reserve and how that how that can contribute to to dcm surgery and i think it's actually it's a very exciting topic and i'm looking forward to sort of getting getting my my, my teeth into uh, further further work in the in the months to come I totally agree. I think it is a fascinating, fascinating area for, for myelopathy going forward. And whilst there are many uncertainties, is there information that you've been able to take from all of this that's, that's to change your practice now as a spine surgeon? I think I think certainly. I I, I very much view age uh, very differently now. I, I think I think age and frailty combined, when you're assessing patient suitability for surgery, means that. I very much provide a more individualized and a more tailored approach. So uh, I know that there are more risks to operating on an 85-year-old person who has cardiac comorbidities compared to, say, a younger person who has no comorbidities is not on any antiplatelet medications. But I, I think I can still perform uh, effective treatments for myelopathy, just changing my approach slightly. And and then it also allows me to be honest to the patients. I have the uh, the evidence from these studies that I can I can say to the patients sitting in front of me. I know you have significant impairment for myelopathy. I can do surgery, but that might come with a twenty five percent chance of mortality given our surgical plan and given your comorbidities. And and it allows you to give the patients much a uh, much broader idea, much broader expectations of the surgery. And then you match that with my previous study where I can explain that you know, they will get a benefit, but it might not be uh, of, of a magnitude than, say, a younger patient and, and allow them to make that decision. And I think it's really important. I think the elderly patient cohort is in this day and in the 21st century are much, much more informed and unable to make many, many more different healthcare choices than, say, previously. And um, also allows the families to have much more of an idea about the risks of, of surgery and allows them more information. And ultimately, um, I always say to my patients that I am kind of their servant. I'm here to provide them information and be able to provide the most effective treatment that I can provide. But ultimately, it's their decision. I want them to be, um, to be the one that's autonomous in these decisions um, so they can make, make the best decision for them. I think that's a really important point. I think a condition like myelopathy which is not black and white about management decisions it's crucial to make a shared decision which is relevant for for the individual just coming back to to your practice changes could you give us an example perhaps you know on the surgical perspective of how you might change your approach to, to somebody who perhaps is older more frail than, than perhaps a, a younger comparator I would give an example of, say, someone who has one or two level stenosis that I would almost always try to, if they're a younger patient who are still working, try to adopt decompression from an anterior approach. I think that um, uh, an, an anterior kind of discectomy infusion procedure, I think, is well tolerated, just an, an overnight stay. 
and enables the patients to sort of get back to to their work and, and their, their surroundings much quicker. But we know that in the older cohort, the risk of things such as dysphagia and dysphonia after surgery are, are a little bit higher. And that, you know, two-level ACDF surgery may take um, up to two, two and a half hours of general anaesthetic. The alternative could be if they were older, right, you could uh, use an approach such as a, a split laminectomy um, or a skip laminectomy, whereby you can avoid the use of uh, instrumented fusion and you'll be able to do that uh, decompression in a much more effective way, but really reduce the sort of the on-table time to about 45 minutes to, to, to one hour if you're doing a single level split lamy. So you can achieve the same amount of decompression but the the risks of the surgery is slightly different, and and therefore the the you're sort of tailoring that approach to the patient that that's in front of you. So one of the the lessons I guess from from the approaches you've been able to take is that benefit of of that that data set to really refine and and interrogate uh, a question to get towards a sort of individualized perspective on, on on care and and obviously in parallel conditions cardiac disease stroke they've had that approach now for, for decades they've been able to refine very specific algorithms on on management do you think in degenerative cervical myeloma that, that's a direction that we're going in that we can go in i think so i think we've seen a real boom um in the last 10 years of an increasing scientific approach to myelopathy but also to kind of spine surgery in general and I, I think this has been really helpful for us as clinicians. It, it's taken away the sort of subjective element part of surgery. Instead of you know seeing a patient in clinic, look at the MRI scan, and and asking yourself questions such as you know is there CSF around the cord or not, then potentially in the future we have elements of such as multi-parametric imaging that will that will be able to define for us in a, in a quantitative manner the degree of myelopathy and how that correlates to impairment. Um, you know, just from looking at the MRI scan. And I think the work that I'm doing, the work that the Toronto group and the Cambridge group are, are doing is really um, trying to bring the experience we have from these huge databases, which I think are fantastic resources of, of, of information, and, and trying to bring it down at a patient level to be more precise and to be more individualized. And I, I think that we, we as, uh, as, as researchers, as clinicians, should really be championing that approach worldwide. And we should be having more of a scientific rigor to our decision making and our data collection and our outcomes in order to make us better and in order to make our, our, our patients have better outcomes. So it's great to catch up with um with jamie because his research and, and and that of others picked up by by ben has really changed my perspective certainly because i can remember when i was first writing one of the early iterations of the myelopathy.org website and it was about the time quite a lot of work was being done on on predictive factors around on surgery and age wasn't in those predictive models and it sort of resonated with my perspective that that myelopathy was something that could occur at any age and and perhaps that age related disease tag was unhelpful and I think you know certainly at the moment in the UK at least the average age for for, for diagnosis is, is 55 which I think most of us would accept is is not not an old age is it Ewan? No definitely not. But clearly what's emerging here is there is something behind age but what actually is it what actually does age mean how does it affect the spinal cord I think those are our unanswered critical questions. 
there's certainly a lot more research that needs to be done. We, we have younger members within the support group who have myelopathy. So it's important to get to the bottom of this. And maybe we need to rethink our thinking that myelopathy is a disease of the older generation. I had my first neck-related symptoms when I was in my 30s. So did the doctor sort of overlook myelopathy? Because according to you know, medical research, I was too young to have this condition. Also, the world's population, of course, only getting older and older and staying active for longer. So will we see an increase in myelopathy cases in the future? Because in general, the population lead a more active lifestyle. I think that's very interesting. I think people in general would agree that that is likely to happen for sure. So what did you think about Jamie's last point there, Ewan, the, the idea that perhaps we can move to a much more data-driven decision-making that can really give individuals all the information they need to make a very personal decision. I mean, perhaps I can change that question. You know, when you were thinking about the operation that you needed to have, you know, were you faced with lots of choices? Was it confusing or you sort of just led with what you were being told? I was really led with what I was told. And I think the most information I had was from the the physiotherapists, um, and I had to do my own research as well. So the more data that we have for people to look at, I think it will make the choice easier for them as well. And if you're older, I think this data will help with some of your concerns and your doubts on having sort of surgery for myelopathy. So Data, data is key, I suppose, is what they say. And, and I think that really relates to, you know, what is one of the top 10 research priorities identified by the AO Spine Recode DCM project, that individualizing surgery. How can we get that information that can really offer that person in front of us a very personalized uh, decision? And I think big data is going to be important, but it's obviously going to have to be matched with some specific studies. It's interesting that, that both Ben and Jamie's work has, for example, identified that age appears to influence the type of procedure people are offered. And it's unclear whether that's the correct course of action uh, on an individual level, for example. So all that's left to be said is a big thanks to Ben Grodzinski and Dr. Jamie Wilson for joining us. This was Myelopathy Matters from myelopathy.org. The podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV and supported by an award from the National Institute of Health Research of the United Kingdom. Although the views expressed are not necessarily those of the NHS, the National Institute for Health Research, or the Department of Health and Social Care. To keep up to date with the latest in the field, why not subscribe on your favourite podcast app, where you'll also find all of our previous episodes. There's of course lots more information about the condition at myelopathy.org, but if you've got a question about myelopathy or an experience you'd like to share, we'd love to hear it. Please do get in touch at ben at myelopathy.org. But until next time, Goodbye.